0: this beautiful constraint from the Holy Spirit today and so I'm going to do my best to stay in the rails um, of where it is that God is leading because I genuinely believe that there are some of you today who will make an eternal decision that will change everything in your life but it will also begin to influence others in the sphere of how you live life. And there are some of you who you think you're okay. And you're deceived, you're not. You're not okay. And not from my perspective, not from my judgment, but from Jesus's. And I don't mean to create insecurity in your salvation, but Jesus may. Because in Luke chapter 18, he shares two parables on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was significant then, And it remains significant today. A parable is always a story with a point. It sometimes is told to address misconceptions, but it never is contrary to the whole of Scripture. Okay? So if you understand parables, just understand that. When Jesus told parables, he always had a point. Sometimes he was addressing misconceptions, but it was never contrary to the rest of Scripture or anywhere else in Scripture. And so I want you right now, and I want you to focus your thinking on how life is lived from a biblical perspective. So you may be here, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Welcome. One of the things that Jesus is, and the word of God, and Jesus is very clear on, is that um, we all live in a way, not multiple ways, okay? We all live in a way. And the way in which we live determines ultimately what we most trust or who we most trust. And so I want you to focus your thinking on how life is lived following a singular way. And on that way, please hear me with your whole heart. Oh man, there are gonna be different sizes of struggles. Even if you say yes to following Jesus, oh, you're gonna struggle. Not because like, I'm setting you up for it, but how I many you know life's just not easy? Like, there's going to be struggles, there's going to be things that you do and repeatedly do that you don't want to do. There are going to be things that happen to you that you wonder, why is this happening to me? And then there are going to be seismic, large-scale things in the world that absolutely break your heart, that make it difficult for us at times to trust that God is good. And so on this way, there are going to be different sizes of struggles, but you are still following Jesus, you are still trusting Jesus, you are still living in this singular way, But on that way, you can also intentionally choose to walk another way. And sometimes this is very gradual, other times it's very deliberate. But you can choose in a moment to trust another way. And some of you can do it with words, and some of you may never do it with words, but your heart and your affections grow cold to the things of God and they become very, very warm to self or the things of this world. You know, when you think about I, I was thinking and reflecting this week that I understand the idea of secularism, that we want spaces that are not religious, that we want political spaces in a nation, we want spaces where they're just neutral spaces. But Here's the challenge, though. What Jesus taught and what the, the Bible teaches is there's no such thing as a neutral space. That all space is contested. So where we we evacuate God from a space, darkness encroaches in. And some of you don't believe in darkness, and that's a problem. And some of you believe everything is darkness, and that's a problem. (laughs) But I understand secularism, I understand humanism, and I was thinking this week, like what's the ultimate destination if we want to remove God from something from somewhere, and we just want a place where it's just us, that God isn't interfering, he's not welcome, he's not belong. What's the ultimate destination to that? And the only thing I can think of is hell. That's the road in which this goes, because hell is the ultimate, whatever your theology of hell is, it is a place where God never is, and his presence isn't. So we can experience, in human wisdom, we can actually create spaces of small h hell on earth, And this isn't new, this has been going on since the days of Jesus. And this is consistently what Jesus taught us about, about life, that it's this singular way in which you and I walk. And Luke chapter 18 that we're in right now, as I said, he's on the way to Jerusalem and he knows that he is about to die. He is about to give his life. He's about to lay down his life. And so his time is short in a sense. And so there is an urgency and an intensity to way in which he begins to live and he begins to speak. There is a clarity of focus that is different from the earlier portion. Of scripture that we see. In the first parable that we're going to read, Jesus casts a widow as its main character. A widow was one that is vulnerable and helpless. In the second parable, he places a Pharisee front and center who in culture would have been esteemed and self-righteous. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, here, and then one, actually we're going to read 1 to 14, two parables back to back. But I want you to listen really carefully to these words. Hear them. And he told them a parable, his disciples and the Pharisees are listening in, and he told them a parable to the effect, here's why, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Everyone just whisper, always pray. pray. Don't Don't lose heart. That's the context of these parables. Always pray. And when you pray, don't lose heart. And now Jesus is going to tell two stories that profoundly, profoundly make us lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, "Give me justice against my adversary." For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, "Though I neither fear God nor respect man, respect humanity, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, pestering me, is so persistent, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." And the Lord said. So that's the parable. And then he said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, to his called, to his kids? Who cry to him day and night, will he delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice or justification or vindication to them speedily. Nevertheless, he asks a question. When the son of man comes, will he find faith? Everyone say faith. Will he find faith on the earth? It's a question. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what does that look like? If you and I trust in ourselves as righteous, we treat others with contempt. That's what Jesus said. You know what the world is sick of from us as Christians? Treating them with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, vindicated, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, these are vastly different parables, but they each contain three characters. And they had this singular thread running through them of justification or vindication. Who's right is really what Jesus is striving at. They're really different, different contexts, different stories, different parables, but they're actually not as different as we think. They're pretty related. So a question I would ask you is this is, how does being vindicated impact your view of justice or fairness? How do you respond when life isn't good, when things don't go your way, when, when you're doing the right things and you're getting the wrong results? When you're doing and walking in a way that is faithful and true to God's word, but you're getting overlooked, you're getting, not getting the promotions, you, the, the, the unrighteous around you seem to be advancing and, and you're stuck. Or like Jesus said, like you're like a widow who has experienced just gut-wrenching heartache in life, that which you never desired to experience, you've experienced. And the question Jesus would ask though is, have you lost heart? Can he still find faith? Has your view of God shifted as a result of what you've walked through? Or are you so secure in yourself and your own self righteousness and your own success and your own maybe bank account and your own dot dot dot, your own mental health, anything? Like, are you so secure in yourself that you don't need God? Oh, you pretend you need God or you with pious words, but you, you get up every day and you, you don't need Him really. You, you, you yourself. So sustaining, you can make an income, it's coming in, like you're good. And in being good, are you, is your faith rooted in yourself? Is it shifting? These are the things that Jesus is talking about. On his way to Jerusalem, he's beginning to get clearer and clearer and clearer. When Jesus told these parables, just understand that it's, it's not entirely different than today, but there's some nuance that you need to get. Like, you know, when someone was assaulted or murdered or even stole your sheep in these contexts, it was on you to bring charges against them, and the judge would either vindicate you or he'd vindicate them. So it's not like in Canada where it's the crown's responsibility to bring charges. That's not how it worked. How it worked in this context is you would stand before the, you know, someone stole your sheep, you would stand before the judge and say, they stole my sheep, this is when they stole my sheep, this is the name of the sheep that they stole. I saw, their, you know, I saw their sandal prints in the sand, like this is what you would do. You would build a case, and the person on the other side would go, I wasn't there, I didn't steal your sheep, I don't care about sheep, I only raise goats. And the judge would have to determine who is right. And the judge's verdict was final, there's no appeal. No appeal, final. And so, that's when Jesus told these parables. No matter how much evidence you produced, here's what Jesus was saying, which is not different from today. How many of you know that justice is supposed to be blind, but it's biased? You can stand in front of an unrighteous judge who can tip the scales in a way that is not just, and that is similar to the day of Jesus. Jesus that we are experiencing, and so Jesus notes that. And so he casts in this story a character of an unrighteous judge. In the first parable, the judge isn't righteous. In other words, the judge cannot be more unlike God, okay? This is what Jesus is driving at. It says here that the judge in the parable that we just read at the very beginning, it says that they neither feared God nor respected man, respected humanity. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the end of it. That's where the journey starts, to fear the Lord. And so this unrighteous judge hasn't even begun to be wise, hasn't even started on the journey. So this unrighteous judge is nothing like God at all and nor do they respect others, nor do they esteem others. I want you to know that God doesn't merely respect you, He loves you. It far, it includes respect, but it far transcedes or, or transcends merely just, like if I said to you, if I said to Lori, like I, I respect you, I respect your decision, that's a beautiful gift to give than someone who doesn't respect you at all. But if you absolutely love someone and then from love show respect, it is not just understood, it is felt in a very deep way. It is experienced in a way that is altogether different. How many of you know that we can love one another and disrespect one another? We can can love one another and say things that are disrespectful to one another. So this judge, again, doesn't even respect. Unlike God, God loves us. He loves us, and from his love comes everything else. So in the first parable, the judge isn't righteous, no fear of God, as not even started, nor do they respect others. Yet this judge, one who is most unlike God, vindicates this widow. Everyone say widow. Widow. Jesus is asking you, so let me finish this, then I'll get there. He vindicates the widow because of her persistence. And I've heard this preached in this way. I've heard this preached in a way where they focus exclusively on the spiritual practice of prayer and the persistence. And I think that that is definitely a layer to it. How many of you know when it comes to pray, we got to persist? we got to persist. But the moral of the parable cannot be, it cannot be, pray until you get your way. It cannot be. It can't be, because that would be contrary to other things in Scripture. Like some of you are really frustrated because you're trying to find your purpose rather than discovering what God's purpose is and doing what God is doing in the earth. Like you're making it all about you. And there is a uniqueness and an individuality to how you follow Christ, yes. But God actually has called you a minister of reconciliation so wherever there is brokenness and things that are lost in the world, you are to join him into seeing God's goodness on the earth. And other than seeing hell, you are to bring heaven. Every single one of you is called and has a purpose to join God in doing this. So here we have this widow and what Jesus is pointing out with the story is this unrighteous judge, this, un- this is nothing like God, yet she is persistent. She is persistent in her prayers. She is persistent in her petition. And yes, that is spiritual practice. And yes, that is being to be inspired. But what is Jesus driving at that is deeper? He is taking someone who should not have faith, but still has faith who has experienced the most unjust things in this world, who has every right to be angry and bitter towards God, yet is still soft, tender, and humble, and trusting in the character and nature of God. See, this widow in the story knows that God is not unrighteous, that he is righteous. The widow in the story knows that God is not just respectful, that he is loving. She has gone through hell on earth, but her eyes are still fixed to the God in heaven. And from that place of faith, she is rooted and she is anchored, and so she persists. Jesus is teaching us about God to whom we pray, not just how we pray. Because when life is most unfair, when vindication, if you will, vanishes, we can lose heart. And Jesus doesn't want this happening to us. This is what he is saying. I'm telling you these parables so that you don't lose heart. Well. What is losing heart anyways? Losing heart is something that I guarantee you you have experienced or may be experiencing right now. When life is hard, you become faint, tired, weary. Have you not ever felt, I'd woken up one day and felt like I just don't wanna do the right thing today. Like I just don't wanna go to work. I don't want to pay taxes. Turn the person beside you and say, that's not the right thing. I'm just joking, just probing. <laughs> losing heart looks like becoming faint, growing weary, and Isaiah prophesied old that, that even young people who are full of vigor, they can lose heart. We have a generation that is losing heart in God. You don't lose heart in God, you replace it with some, you replace God with something else. Human beings, every single one of us, and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, please hear me. Human beings all worship. You can never not worship. The only thing that changes is the source of your worship and the direction of your worship. You may be worshiping yourself. That's humanism. It removes God and it replaces it with self. We live in a nation that wants all the blessings of the kingdom while rejecting its king. He wants to replace the king with self, but still have all of the ethics of the kingdom. It's deeply problematic. So a losing heart looks like you becoming faint, it's growing weary in following Jesus, but a changed heart is us looking to self rather than trusting God. And this is a secular humanistic temptation in staring many in 2023, and it is an antichrist spirit disguised as a more sure way to live and to get the most from life rather than trusting and following Jesus. And for Jesus, again, we don't lose heart by trusting who God is. We lose heart when we begin to get our eyes focused on what's happening to us and not who is with us as we are going through what is happening to us. This causes us to lose heart. Losing heart is a symptom, a changed heart is deeply problematic. And it's why Luke places the next story that we read about a Pharisee who has not just lost heart, but has a complete change of heart. They are going through all of the motions, but their heart is completely changed, and they don't know it. Man, that just puts a beautiful, convicting fear in me. Lord, help us not to go through the motions. Help us to follow you. Help us to trust you. So in the next parable, we have, a God, we have God, we have a Pharisee who is the most esteemed, <laughs> and then we have a tax collector who is the most despised. Turn the person beside you and say, I get the story. <laughs> Here's what is so beautiful. God equally listens to both, but beyond their words or societal appearance, God knows them. May I say this lovingly? God knows you. God is the one relationship in your life that you do not have to manage He knows you. You don't have to manage him. What are you talking about? Some of you get up and you begin your prayer every single day by telling God what you didn't do the day before and how today you'll do better. Stop that, please. When you opened your eyes, he is so good that there is mercy available for you. So yeah, maybe acknowledge your sin, yes. But don't try to prove to God that you are going to be better. He knows you. Trust that he is good. And then from rest, allow him to give you what you need to walk out the day. So the Pharisee prays what theologians affectionately call the five eyes. Everyone say the five eyes. It is known as humanism or secularism. It is replacing God with I, with self. The Pharisee prays, "I thank you. I am not like other men—extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I get all—I give tithes of all that I get. So five I's: I, 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 I. I. <laughs> now the law required only one fast a year—the Day of Atonement—and this Pharisee fasts twice a week. Pretty good." The issue was not the spiritual practices of the Pharisee, it was the practices didn't change his posture. Your spiritual practices are really, really vital. They're incredibly vital to your life, to your following Jesus, to mine. But they are not more important than your posture. Because you can have all the practices But if the posture of your heart isn't right, it ain't right. Right? Right. (laughs) Like relationally, I could do all the right things, but if I have unforgiveness and hatred in my heart towards you, you're going to feel that. You may not know it. It may never come out of my lips, but you're going to feel it. If the posture of my heart is not affection towards you, you're going to know it. You're going to feel that. So spiritual practices, yeah, they're really, really important. And in one way, sometimes spiritual practices are the things that God can use to change our posture. But other times, spiritual practices can become the things that we boast in and ward God off not to change our postures. And this is the Pharisee. And the reason why I know that so intimately is because I have been this Pharisee. My temptation is to fall and be like this Pharisee. Come on, just me? Anybody here ever look at people and get judgmental? Anybody ever think that our nation would be better without them? Who's the them? Who's the them? Hey, every Christian is a potential Pharisee or a Pharisee being healed. I told you, I'm in constraint today, so. In both parables, I want you to picture a courtroom and a judge. And the Pharisee is building his case before God of why he, not the tax collector, should be vindicated. That's what he's doing. He's building his case. You know the joke I did about sheep standing before? This is when they stole my sheep, all that stuff? It's the same language. This is what the Pharisee is doing. This is why these two parables, though seemingly so different, they're not. They're the same thing. And that's why Luke places them here. Did Jesus tell them right back to back? I don't know. But Luke put them here. The tax collector and the Pharisee. Okay, now please really hear me. The tax collector and the Pharisee, they pray what is true for them. And that is good but they pray what is true for them with a seismic difference. We live in a world now that says, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And in a small T way, that's true. If you and I are getting to a disagreement or an argument, I see it one way, you see it another way. I'm not all right, you're not all wrong, you're not all wrong, I'm all right. And if we're not all right, it's not all right. So there's this small t truth, watch this, but then regardless of our spat, regardless of who is right, at some point, there's a larger truth, an ultimate truth, a greater truth that is that if I'm wrong and you don't forgive me, There is a greater truth than just who's right or wrong. There's an ultimate truth, which is forgiveness. There's an ultimate truth that is reconciliation. There is an ultimate truth, which is as much as it depends on me, I work for restitution, which is the evidence of a changed heart, a changed posture. Ultimate truth, small t-truth. And this is what we see in the story here is the Pharisee is saying things that are true. He's not like the tax collector. He's not wrong in saying that. He is pointing to things that are true. He does fast twice a week. He does give a tithe of all that he gets. He's not speaking falsehoods. He's not pretending to be somebody. He is saying things that are true. The Pharisee, though, is not giving room for ultimate truth. While the tax collector equally says what is true, he beats his breath, he stands far off, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven in the story. But watch what he does, that is so seismically different. All of these things, don't feel bad for the tax collector, he's a sinner. He's done things to people that he should feel bad about. He has extorted things from people that he should not have taken. He has treated people not respectfully, but in unrighteous ways. And he acknowledges this, that not only is my transgression against you, it is this way as well. And it says in the scriptures or in the story that Jesus tells that he says these words God, be merciful to me. What is mercy? It is giving you and I a gift that we cannot earn, nor do we deserve. He says, God, would you be merciful? To me, sinner, what does the tax collector do that the Pharisee doesn't do? The tax collector trusts in who God is and the Pharisee only trusts in themselves. And this is seismically different. The tax collector says, God, be merciful to me. What is that? God, I know that you are great. When you in Exodus showed up to Moses, you introduced yourself as gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you are faithful. And so the tax collector does not put his faith in the power of his confession, he puts his faith in the character of who God has said God is. God, be merciful to me because you are a God of mercy. God, I trust you to be God. And the Pharisee is saying, in comparison to these other people, I am better than. One is found and the other is lost. And God listens to both prayers, but he only vindicates and justifies one, not the other, and in the grandest reversal, God renders his verdict and he explains why he ruled this way. And in Judges chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you this, this man went to his house, this tax collector went to his house justified, vindicated, rather than the other one. Pause. In the story, it breaks my heart that one can be so close to God yet not get God. Some of you believe in a God that it's just gonna be all okay. It's not the God of Jesus right here. For everyone, everyone say everyone. Okay, that's challenging, because he's not just saying like, for those of you listening to the story, which really would have been helpful, because it's like, whoo, that's just for them. How many of you ever been in a class when the teacher starts giving heck to the whole class for one thing one kid did? And everyone gets heck in the class. Don't you wish in that moment, like, just take that kid out. None of us did that. It was just them. That's not this story. This story, God's not given us heck. What He's actually given us is heaven. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How did the Pharisee exalt himself? Oh, loved ones, hear it every day, all over media, all over social media, from your own lips and from your own friends, by exclusively trusting in their truth, their practices, their piety in comparison to others, but never actually considering God. How did the tax collector humble himself? By confessing what is true. He was a sinner, but then entirely trusting God who is merciful to sinners. Peter A disciple of Jesus who, oh, you want to talk about someone who struggled. You want to talk about different sizes of struggles, Peter. Oh. Peter struggled tremendously, but he lived his life in a singular way. Following Jesus is not about perfection. It is about trusting the perfect sacrifice, not your perfectly following it. It is trusting in what He has done on your worst day is better than you on your best day. It's so different. So I want you to listen to Peter as we close. I want you to listen to someone who walked, listened, failed, struggled, got it right, and then got it real wrong and experience the grace of God firsthand, I want you to listen to what Peter said about following Jesus. It's, he said this in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. Clothe yourself, all of you. Turn the person beside you and say, clothes are good. <laughs> Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. Don't you wish, Canadians, we could be more humble than one another? Honestly. Oh, my gosh. We need a baptism of humility in this nation. And then it says this, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Even when God opposes you, that's love. Anybody here ever do driver's ed? Where the little instructor had a break? And they opposed opposed you? So that you didn't get killed? You didn't run through the red light? They opposed you? It wasn't because they didn't love you, it's because they love, well they love themselves and then they don't get, get in an accident. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? So Some of you even, God's disposition to you is only ever good even when he opposes you, opposes me. So God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, that is an action that we do. So everything is about what God has done and then in response to what God has done, this is what we do. We humble ourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. And then it says, casting all your anxieties on him, because know this, that even if you walk through hell on earth, he cares. There's not a moment, a minute, a situation, a circumstance, an event that you experience where God doesn't care. And so you can go through life and experience hardship, difficult things. But The temptation in that moment is don't lose heart. Let your heart remain anchored in a God who loves you, who sees you, who is good towards you and cares for you so then you can cast all your anxieties on him. Not God, I don't want to bother you. You're never bothering him because his affection towards you is love. What you and I are called to do is humble ourselves. Ah, we all have profound struggles in following Jesus, and everyone said, amen. Equally, though, we only have one God whom we truly trust. And so when it comes to Jesus and his way of life, some of you, here or at home, I'm not sure, you haven't just lost heart, you've changed your heart, and you need to repent You need to humble yourself. You need to, like that sinner, beat your breast and say, God, be merciful to me. I'm I'm a sinner. I I got offended at you along the way. I lost faith in you. I began to trust myself even more. Some of you had a change of heart. Others of you. You may be surrounding yourself with people who placate your rebellious posture towards God. Like the Pharisee, you surround yourself by people who are all lukewarm, so it feels good. You are not good. It's just by comparison to those you're around. You feel good, but you are not good. You're not in an okay spot. heart of Jesus is to see a heaven on earth. Aren't you heartbroken with the continual vision of hell on earth that we're seeing? Why are we surprised when we all live humanistically the removal of God that it does only produce hell on earth? you can profoundly struggle and follow Jesus, you cannot follow trust and worship yourself while continuing to call yourself a Christian. Please just stop. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to say to God in the end, sorry, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, the door will be opened. I pray today at the end of the service, if you need to humble your heart, that you would do so. Some of you are not good, but God is. And if you humble yourself in the twinkling of an eye, he can change not only your spiritual practices he can change your posture i don't say it from a place of fear i do say it from a place of awe may the lord bless me, may he keep you